This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and I'm joined by two of my marvelous co-hosts, the brilliant Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University, and the wonderful and whip-smart Shireen Ahmed. She is a freelance journalist in Toronto, Canada. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about colonialism in sport in light of the recent protests in Puerto Rico. We're going to talk about the Pan Am Games. And I sit down with young sports journalist Julia Belas from Sao Paulo, Brazil, to talk about the state of diversity in Brazilian media, sports media in particular, and what's gone on in their women's game since the World Cup. But before all that, I wanted to say at least a little bit about the WNBA All-Star Game and the sighting of Burn It All Down merch. So WNBA stuff. I know Linz isn't with us and she's there, but what's been cool for you guys? Um, there's some orange carpet event. Of course, I stand everything that Kia Nurse does, and she like debuted her new sneakers. I don't need basketball sneakers because I don't play basketball, but I just sort of feel like I love her and I want to support her every venture. So I'm thinking about basketball sneakers. And Lindsay had tweeted out she saw somebody on the Jumbotron that actually was wearing Bayad merch. So that was very exciting for me. Did you see this, Amira? I did. It was very, very, very exciting to see it out in the wild. And just as a reminder, you too can get your own merchandise now on our Teespring store. And I'll give you a little secret. If you use the code BURN15, that's B-U-R-N 15, uh, you get 15% off your order until the end of the summer. So that was a small promotion, but also it was very exciting to see. My favorite thing about All-Star, there's this funny video that Katie Nolan posted of NECA, my friend NECA, and her sister, Chanae, who were at an after party on the phone with each other, dancing at different parts of the party, (laughs) but like on the phone with each other, dancing at the same time. And thankfully, Katie Nolan was there to get a video. And so she was able to Zoom from one sister to another to watch them dance the exact same way while talking to each other on the phone. And it was uh, a riot. Also, they changed their outfits within like an hour of each other to like completely different looks of the day. And that was quite impressive. So it just seems like a blast. Everybody seems to be having a great time. And there's a really interesting announcement that came out that I'm sure we'll talk more about. But one of the initial things that was announced this past weekend is that FIBA has introduced an initiative aimed at keeping the top U.S. women's team players here instead of going abroad. And this would be an expanded game and training camp schedule leading up to, say, the Olympic Games. It's a quest to win a seventh medal. And like I said, it's really designed to keep some of the top talent at home. So they've already unveiled eight names, um, including NECA, including Sue Bird, including I'm sure, Elena Deladon. So there's eight names already on the list. There's four other spots up for grabs. And this is a piloted program that would look to sustain their salaries during the off season and in the run-up to the Olympics. 
to make them more like the women's national soccer team. Um, and so it'll be very interesting to see how that played out. But at least the announcement to me at least made me cautiously optimistic that there was some kind of thought and thinking about how can we sustain and, you know, help grow the sport as well as compensate and give resources to our women's national team players. So that was exciting. Um, and I can't wait to dive more into that and look at that more closely in the upcoming weeks. I have a question. Is that also hoping to prevent them from traveling overseas in the off season? Like we know Brianna Stewart got injured. Yes, while she yes, was so playing. that's what I meant by keeping them home. Yeah. So like, and so their bodies aren't being used like 12 months of the year so they can survive financially. Right, so that's, exactly. Yeah, that's great. I hope that works out. That's important. I just want to say that the small person, um, child, I assume, that was wearing a burn it all down shirt was also wearing a unicorn skirt. <laughs> can, yeah. can we just say that the unicorn mixed with the giant flames is the best ever? We just like, you know, like there's something. It's the mashup you never knew you yeah, needed. Exactly. <laughs> like there's something amazing about unicorn plus giant incinerator for all the garbage in sports. Like I feel like it's like garbage in sports incinerator. Oh, here comes the unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, little junior flamethrower for making our weekend. Now, given this week, which has been incredibly important for Puerto Rico and has seen the resignation of a governor and mass public protests and some very important celebrities coming out in favor and some very important celebrities sitting down, we wanted to talk a little bit about colonialism and sport. Amira, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I certainly do. So. There's an image trending um, that has been circulating online this past week that really speaks to the heart of what we wanted this conversation to be about. It's an image by Vienna Rye. She posted it on her Instagram. We'll link it to the show notes. That was a beautifully composed image that said, from Hawaii to Puerto Rico, U.S. colonialism must end. And it's a mashup picture of people protesting in both Hawaii and Puerto Rico. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news or you might have seen images over the last uh, week and a half or so, you'll have seen people take to the streets in both Puerto Rico as well as Hawaii and across the, both of those diasporas in solidarity for various reasons. So in Hawaii, you have the protests centering around the protection of Moana Kea which is a sacred spot in Hawaii. Uh, it's also the tallest point. It's believed spiritually. That's where the spiritual connection from the gods to the land in Hawaii is. It is tantamount to putting a $3 billion telescope the size of three football fields on the Vatican. And so that is one of the the protests that we've seen happening as people, kuponas, elders, spiritual elders, um, have come to literally lay their bodies on the line and protect a sacred space while this uh, massive telescope that is being bankrolled by the government as well as 30 universities, check the list, see if your school is implicated on it, are combining to fund this massive, massive project in a site that disrupts the spiritual connection that many have to the land. And then in Puerto Rico, a protest that started by calling for the resignation of the governor of Puerto Rico. You might have seen the hashtag, hashtag Ricky Renuncia. And then that turned to hashtag Ricky Safeway after he finally announced his resignation. Yay! As of August 2nd. But the protests were not simply about getting the governor out of power, right? They were in reaction to chats that had been released to the public that shows misogyny, transphobia, homophobia, callous regard to those who are suffering in the wake of Hurricane Maria, and so on and so forth. But the protest itself was about more than just that. It was about generally the state of Puerto Rico that has a control board that is really just a colonial control board. And 
I think both of these and why that image spoke to me so powerfully is because both of these protests, I think, have touched their respective diasporas and, and, and gotten a lot of people on board for solidarity because they have manifested into a real reckoning about the legacies and the harm of U.S. colonialism in those specific spaces. Um, so it morphs to be not just about the chats, right? It's not just about this one sacred space, but it's about the seizing of land. It's about the kind of disregard that the United States has sown to both of these places that have some similarities, of course, in terms of looking for military footholds in respective places, business interests in in both places, disaster capitalism in both places. And so I think one of the things that this triggered for us, however, is a few weeks back, we had a wonderful conversation about colonialism in sport, particularly centered on the Women's World Cup. And we focused mainly on European colonialism, French and British um, colonialism in particular. And I think this opened up a moment to say, okay, well, we have two spaces who are up pushing back against U.S. colonialism. And I think that part of that legacy has been interwoven with sports, as as most all politics are. And so when we think about the legacies of colonization in these spaces, we can see sport wrapped up into them. And so that's kind of the conversation we have today. And if you remember back on episode 71, we had a conversation about the colonization of surfing and Shireen spoke with Bonnie Sue about her um, upcoming book, Why We Swim. And I think that that conversation is good to kind of revisit, to do a deep dive on Hawaii. Um, certainly folks like Duke Kahanamoku, who if you've ever been to Waikiki, that's the statue on the beach of Waikiki a surfing legend, swimmer, um, but thinking about his history of being born before the monarchy was overthrown in Hawaii to living up until Hawaii became a state, living with citizenship, eventually representing at the Olympic Games. You know, there's all of this gray area in being a colonial subject and his expression as an athlete. And I think that's a great conversation to revisit. And we wanted to just kind of think about the intersection of colonialism, U.S. colonialism and sports in these two spaces. And I think we'll start and dive right in with Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a really interesting space. Uh, We know it's a commonwealth of the United States. But every year when we do the Pan American Games, which we'll talk about later, the Olympics, if you're turning on the TV, you're watching those introductions, the march in, you might stop and say, hmm, why does Puerto Rico have its own team, right? If it's a, a commonwealth yeah. of of the United States. And I think that's a really why valid question that a lot of people have. Puerto Rico have its own <laughs> state. Well, I will now tell you. In the Olympics. And not only that, but also in right. soccer. Right, yeah. right, certainly. So... To answer this question, we have to go back to the mid-20th century. And one of the things that we see there is a desire for countries to participate in these international competitions as a way to prove that they were countries that were strong and vital and, and independent. And this is a particularly important moment as you have the emergence of new sovereign nation states starting in the mid-century, really going all the way up, especially in the 60s. You have all these new countries who one of the first things they do and prioritize is trying to make themselves legible to the IOC, to the International Olympic Committee. And so within that, they had a whole program, the governing sporting bodies that were aimed to help kind of smaller, more emerging spaces in in countries get off the ground and into the IOC. And so within that, uh, you have this opportunity for Puerto Rico led by people on the island who said, you know, we want to compete separately, right? So they had participated in um, games in the 30s under the U.S. flag. And and there's a movement within the island to say, no, actually, we want sovereignty when it comes to international competition. But the rub was in order to do that, you had to prove that you were seen as an independent functioning state, that you had international standing, etc. So by 1948, there was a big enough movement at the state level, at the Olympic level, for officials to petition for inclusion. 
in international games. Specifically, they were aiming at the IOC for Olympic inclusion. And so they had to write a letter to the IOC, whatever. And there's this really telling quote that actually my grad student, Paulina, who's phenomenal, we have to have on the show, pulled out and brought to my attention. So in the response to this request for Puerto Rico to become an independent entity in terms of the Olympic Games, the nasty president of the IOC, Avery Brundage, who I detest, basically was like, okay, you know, there's a possibility that they can present uh, participate in the Olympics, but... This is what he said, quote, because of his political status as a dependency, permission would have to be obtained by the U.S. Olympic Association and the other U.S. Amateur Athletic Associations. And while he goes on to note that this could be arranged without trouble, it tells you that even Puerto Rico's participation came at the required permission, required them essentially asking, you know, super their their parents, like, can we participate in these games? Can you sign this waiver form for us? Can you, it reinforces this kind of colonial relationship. And so it happened and, and they were ushered into the IOC under the Global Sporting Bodies Initiative. And since 1948 have competed under the Puerto Rican flag in the international games that the IOC oversees. And that's not without tension, right? So you have instances in the late 60s where Puerto Rican athletes uh, protested the playing of the U.S. national anthem. You have the 79 Pan Am Games, which you can talk about later, where the basketball match between the U.S. and Puerto Rico became this huge kind of moment of sovereign expression. You have a lot of the players on Puerto Rican teams coming from the diaspora and really kind of uniting this kind of political feeling of folks on the island against the U.S. And I think that really is something, if we pull back a bit, really is a way to think about sport in both Puerto Rico and Hawaii, which is that it's had this dual effect. On one hand, you've had early YMCA missionaries in both spaces that have imported sport in particular ways, sports that are not necessarily indigenous to those spaces, um, lots of calisthenics and basketball, um, baseball. You had it as a space that also promoted cultural unity in Hawaii, where you had Japanese laborers and Chinese laborers and imported slaves from Puerto Rico, and you had um, Native Hawaiians, and everybody was kind of coming together in these sporting spaces. Then you also had it as the ability to turn it on its head and become a site of sovereign expression, as you see with Puerto Rico saying, we want to be represented, we want to walk in under the Puerto Rican flag and have our own you know, teams at the international level. And so I think sport is this really interesting laboratory in this place where at at once it can be a driver of colonization. And on the other hand, it also can create a space in which people can push back on that and try to express themselves and push for sovereignty within a sporting space. Shireen? Yeah, thanks. I just had a really quick question just to talk about Puerto Rico as you were saying Commonwealth sort of region of the United States. Do Puerto Ricans have American citizenship? Yes. Is that awarded them? Because, okay, they do. So then it's like more like, could it be called a territory? Because like the difference is Hawaii is an actual state of the United States, right? Like it's one of the little stars on the Star Spangled Banner. Right. No, Puerto Rico is certainly a territory. I think it's fairly interchangeable in that way. I always think that Hawaii serves as a really good example of those who would push for statehood for Puerto Rico, thinking it would end colonial ills. Hawaii is the shining example of the fact that that's not the case. Right. And so both territories are very similar in the sense of they were military holds, right? Whether it's from Pearl Harbor, um, having a U- U.S. having a foothold in, in the Pacific, or the Navy continuing bombing the shit out of Vieques um, in order to test, you know, military weapons and to have a foothold in the Caribbean, um, both serve that kind of strategic function. And one of the things that happens with Hawaii, of course is that when Pearl Harbor happens, the U.S. mainland, you know, interprets that as attack on themselves in order to go to war. And so that facilitates this 
space in which Hawaii, it's easier to call Hawaii a state, right? When the, when statehood eventually mm-hmm. happens, there's already this kind of precedent, precedence of ownership that's there in a way that with Puerto Rico is, it never is like when, when, even when Hurricane Maria happening, it's not like this is happening to us, right? There's always a kind of yeah. other sense, but I think it's really important also to think about the way in Hawaii, especially business interests have shaped this. So, you know, when they overthrew the queen in the early 1900s, um, it was by 2000 white plantation owners and businessmen through the island who essentially overthrew a monarchy to establish themselves, (laughs) disenfranchise 14,000 people to give rest the control into the hands of 2000. And so the, that is the kind of legacy of, of Hawaii early on. No, I think that's really fascinating, particularly talking about the sports that the colonizers brought over as opposed to indigenous sports to those areas where, you know, like surfing, paddleboarding, all these things are like very like indigenous to Hawaii. So, I mean, I think about that in a way that cricket, was brought to South Asia, like the diaspora and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And how now it's like the main sport in those places that were colonized. It's completely taken over. One could argue that, you know, England won the recent men's cricket world cup, but it's sort of like, well, you know, like the, the amount that it's played in, in, in places that were once colonized and that effect residual effect is still there. But, you know, I'm a believer that sport and, you know, it's very relevant to how it comes. And I really appreciate you giving this this background and you know because like does that mean that in puerto rico baseball wasn't there but came there as like the american game and now it's very heavily played in that region is that like sort of the same thing yeah i i think it is very much the same thing i mean if you think about empire where the british had more colonial roots you have soccer and where the united states has colonial relationships you have baseball so whether it's mm-hmm. Japan or Korea um, or Mexico, <laughs> which is divided because it's been fucked with by both the U.S. and England. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, yeah, I do think you follow the, the colonial power and you follow the sport. Ricky Martin on any moving vehicle <laughs> with pride flag is a win. And totally. I just appreciate that. And I appreciate you know, it's not a lot that we necessarily see in places, particularly where there's danger to marginalized communities as well, particularly vulnerable communities like LGBTIQ, where we see that. And that was, it was so important. And I was just moved by that. Um, also, I love Ricky Martin. So I was happy. I was happy to see that. And even the way he was resisting and waving the flag was like so on rhythm. So I was just like so appreciating that situation. I am so excited to be sitting down today with Julia Belas Trindaji, a sports journalist who specializes in women's football. She's based in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and you can find her at Twitter at, well, for English speakers, July underscore B, like Brenda, T, like Trindaji. So check her out. Julia, thanks for being with us at Burn It All Down. Thanks for inviting me. It's a great, great honor to be talking to you. No, we've followed your work for a long time, and Julia does great investigative reporting and think pieces on the subject of women's football. So now I wanted to ask you a couple things. First of all, I wanted to just start out. You're a young Brazilian woman of color working right now in Bolsonaro's Brazil, (laughs) working, (laughs) working in sports. How is that? What is that like? I mean, it's really difficult for here in Brazil, the situation of people of color, especially black people, is a little bit different than in the States. And we learn how to, we've been getting not a lot of access, but some access to universities, to better jobs by, you know, affirmative actions and things like that from previous governments, not this one, especially not this one. But, you know, I didn't have that kind of help. I was, my family is a 
almost middle class family. I studied in private school. So when I st went to university, it was natural for me to try to find something like something that I really enjoyed rather than something that would be easier to work with or something that, you know, would get me on the work market in, a, in less time. So I started studying journalism. I studied then in England with a Chivney scholarship. And when I returned to Brazil, I wanted to specialize in women's sports because it's really important to me that we don't see a lot of coverage. We don't see a lot of, you know, people talking about it. And we don't see a lot of women in the newsrooms. So I moved from Salvador to Sao Paulo, studied a little bit more and just went from there. We have a problem with diversity in sports media here in the U.S., a really big problem. <laughs> I mean, first, obviously, like overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly about male sports and then also overwhelmingly white. Is the situation similar in Brazil? Yes. The black people usually appear in stories when they are the athletes, almost never writing. And women as well. We have some newsrooms that are a little bit more diverse, but, you know, among reporters, not among editors, not among people who rule the things that are going to be said and be done. And here in Sao Paulo, Salvador is, a, is the blackest city out of Africa. So it was really different for me to leave Salvador and come to Sao Paulo and understand this new environment where I'm the only black woman working with sport journalism in the whole newsroom. And there's like 200 journalists among all of them. So it's really strange to be in that position, but it's something that I was expecting to happen. And the more you advance, the less black people you are going to see, the less women you are going to see. Women are usually thrown out of football and just, you know, cover other stuff. You know, go cover women's stuff, not football. Football is for the guys, it's for the men, and they are the only ones who know about it. And we saw, you know, during Russian World Cup 2018 and even after, we've seen many Brazilian women journalists actually assaulted on camera. Mm -hmm. It's not a new thing, but it's a new thing that they went, to, they organized a movement together on social media to ask for the right to work. Yeah, just let them work, mm -hmm. right? Yes. <laughs> and so it, it looks like it's a pretty, it can be a very hostile environment. Do you think there was any sort of increase in opportunities during the Women's World Cup this time around? Was it different than the last, than four years ago? Oh, it was amazing because we had so many women working with women's football and supporting women's football and making, making sure that it was well covered, that the stories were not only like the basic ones, that people went after good stories and in some newsrooms had uh, some media vehicles had a lot of difficulty with that and you didn't get to see that specialized coverage everywhere but here especially in Sao Paulo women's football is already getting strength stronger by the minute so we have a lot of independent media that already already know how to talk about it already know people and we have some mainstream media that is trying to adapt to get into this circle, you know, and here in Brazil, it's still focused only in Sao Paulo, maybe Rio de Janeiro, but it's spreading. It's spreading a little bit and it's nice to see this moving, this movement. Well, since the World Cup has ended and Brazil had a pretty disappointing, you know, exit from mm -hmm. the tournament for Anyway, <laughs> personally, it's all about me and my disappointment. <laughs> but I don't think, you know, you or I or anyone that ever writes on Brazilian football was very surprised. Yeah, disappointing, but not surprising because we knew Vadon wasn't a great coach. We knew the situation that the girls were playing in, you know. They had a little bit more structure than the last World Cup or than the previous ones, but still a really bad coach and a really bad 
support from the federation. So we didn't have a lot of a lot of chances. We didn't have many chances comparing to the United States or France or any other, you know, top ten national teams. And since then, fill us in on what's <laughs> happening. What's happened since the end of the World Cup? Because there seems to be progress and frustration yes, at the same time. We had more than a month after the World Cup ended for Brazil, we still had the same coach. Uh, the federation was still trying to work out what they were going to do, especially because people who enjoy football, miss football, knew that Vadon wasn't a good coach. He wasn't a good coach for men, and people still threw him in a national team. It's insane to think about it, because any any football in Brazil, no coach would survive Nine losses. Nine. Still, we needed to see some change. And a lot of people were pressuring about it. You know, it's been 15 days. How come Padão is still the coach? The CBF, the Brazilian Federation, said that they were trying to work out the details with the new coach, who they announced the, this week, last week, who is Pia Sandhag. He, she... She already trained the United States. She has two Olympic medals. She's from Sweden. And, you know, she comes from an environment that's really women's football gets real attention, gets real support, not only from the people, but also from the federation, usually. And gets more support than here. So at the same time, we fired Padão. But we kept Marco Aurelio Cunha, who is the coordinator of women's football. And just to have an idea, the national team, the main national team, had Vadão as a coach. And the under-20 and under-17 teams don't have technical commissions, don't have coaches for months. So this coordinator still doesn't give the attention we deserve and the women in football deserve. And this movement was mainly in Sao Paulo, but also spread a little bit to the rest of the country. We had some, you know, parties in Manaus, which is in the north of the country, of people who just turn on the TV, you know, fire up the grill and just watch the games. It was really, really fun. But we need that kind of support to continue, to ask for more, not only structure but also support diversity and the the respect that these players deserve so do you think pia people are pretty excited about her then is this like a moment of celebration here yes yes it is and it's amazing to see how the people how the public has reacted to that because not only we were like really happy that vadon left <laughs> but also <laughs> But we also have this impression that it's something's changing, you know. They're not going to bring this huge coach, this huge name in women's football, if not to promote some changes. And it's really important that she has the time and the ability to work. And, you know, the coordinator lets her work because she's going to do a great job. Julia Bellas Trinidadji. Thank you so much for joining us at Burn It All Down. We love your work. And again, listeners, you can follow her at Twitter at Julie underscore B like Brenda, T like Tom. Thank you, Julia. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Whenever you want, I'm here for it. I love Burn It All Down and just <laughs> I'm a really huge Twitter fan of you guys. And <laughs> kisses and hugs from Brazil to everyone who supports and loves women's football. July 25th started the Pan-American Parapan Games in Lima, Peru, and Bernal Down's pretty psyched about it. Shireen, do you want to intro us into this event? Sure, thanks. As Bren said, you know, from July 26th to Sunday, July, August, the Pan-American Games, and up right after that, the para pen games will be happening. And now this is a really interesting time in sport because a lot of 23 of the categories in the Pan End games will actually be qualifiers for Tokyo 2020. And Burn It All Down has a lot of feelings about Olympic 
games <laughs> and different places. But, you know, for a lot of athletes, this is a place, amateur athletes, this is a place where they can showcase again. Um, as of right now, the medal standings are really interesting. And I like appreciate this because right now when we're recording Sunday morning, Mexico is at the top of the list. And I find that really fun because who doesn't love someone beating the United States and their medal count is at 13 right now. Mexico is, and third is actually Peru, followed by Brazil, Argentina, Cuba, Colombia. I'm just going to go down really fast. The Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, then Canada, Ecuador, Guatemala, and Chile. So those are the medal standings for that. Those are obviously not all the countries participating, but just in terms of, of who's ranked where. Um, we're in the very, very early stages of the games, so this could shift dramatically. And like I said, you know, these are for amateur athletes because the three-on-three basketball of uh, the United States is slated to win the women's division. And they're, they're thinking, wait a minute, this is the same time as the WNBA. Yes, because this is, like I said, for amateur athletes. And Sabrina Niescu is actually on that team, which is, you know, pretty exciting because she's going back to Oregon and going to be playing there. So still qualifies as uh, what we know as an amateur athlete. The rules around this are not fixed from what I understand about being an amateur athlete, because mm. there are some exceptions, because mm-hmm. there's always exceptions whenever there's there's games, you know, like quote unquote exceptions. Um, I just also find it really, really interesting. Today is the day of celebration, National Day in Peru. And, you know, this is coinciding with the games. And I think it's it's really fun. I'm getting a lot of information about this, as well as our friend of the show, Luis Miguel, who's awesome. He's a writer and a presenter at Sports Illustrated. And he's very excited about, you know, soccer in Peru, football in Peru, women and women's and what that looks like and how this is affecting lots of things. And we will mention this later in the show. But the marathon winner for the women's competition was actually a Peruvian and it was a really, really big deal, like at the gold medal winner anyway. And um, I think that's it's very powerful, like to be in your hometown and to be watching. Her name is Gladys Tejeda. And she won. And that was it was just like fans around her. And when you think of marathon runners, you don't automatically think of Peru. And this is something I think that's pretty valuable in, in the Pan-American Games because it showcases the talents of athletes in sports where they don't traditionally get on the podium at the Olympics or like worldwide competitions. So these regional competitions are actually really, really beneficial and it helps amplify sports that otherwise might not be amplified in those places. So, I mean, there's that, there's, you know, so many different competitions happening. And like I said, I think it's, it's just, it's everything from, they have artistic swimming, which I really like. Like we know that synchronized swimming was taken out of the Olympics as a category. And just to see it here is, is great. You know, they have Basque Pelota, which is different than, you know, I think it's, is it futsal, Brenda? No, it's a different sport. The Spanish game, you mean? Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a different, it's a different sport. So like, I didn't even know what that was. So I'm just, I'm sort of excited at that that's happening. They have MBX cycling. Like, I just really, really appreciate the stuff like this. Some type of sports that aren't recognized are there. And I just think that this, this kind of stuff is, 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 is really important. They don't only have things that are specific or non-traditional within the Olympic realm, but I just, like I said, this is just, it's an important, it's an important place. And whether it benefits financially and economically, I don't know. I know that a lot of money was actually poured into the Olympics. So this sporting event actually has a $1.2 billion price tag, which is a lot, (laughs) actually. And there'll be almost 5,000 medals awarded across the Pan Am and Para Pan Am Games this time. And I'm getting my information from a really, really detailed Reuters article on this that we can link in the show notes. But I think this is good because Peru is hoping to actually come out with a really good medal haul. And I just think that's that's important. I mean, their their best presentation and their best finishing came. The Pan Am Games were in Toronto four years ago. And I remember this very well because I remember because the traffic in the city was horrendous. And there are situations like that as well in Lima where traffic and getting from one site to another has proved to be extremely problematic as it is in cities where this kind of thing these kinds of events actually happen. So, you know, I think that Peru are really trying, and this article highlights that they're ready to step up and join Brazil and Argentina as sort of South America's premier sporting nation, 
one of them. And that's if that can benefit and if that can be equally translated to women and supporting them, that would be great. I did not see the parade as it started, like the opening ceremonies, but I heard it was like totally lit party. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I mean, Lima's amazing. It's a really interesting labyrinth-like city. Um, for anyone who's not been there, it's complicated and messy and beautiful. I have written on the history of the Pan American Games and just want to make one kind of quick point, which is one of the things that's most interesting about the Pan American Games is basically people in the U.S. don't give a shit. <laughs> you know, most, most most major athletes in any U.S. sport will forego the games to do something else. And that's very telling. That's about how people in the U.S. don't give a shit about their neighbors. And it was always conceived of from the beginning as a Latin American, Latin American thing. So even in 1951, when Perón is hosting, he's very clear that if the U.S. doesn't participate, he doesn't really mind, you know, one way or another. He's interested. This is a time in his presidency when he's interested in forging relationships with Mexico. He is interested in South-South relationships. And I think that it's really interesting that it's it, even post-Cold War, it's always been that thing where it's sort of just a giant metaphor for how the U.S. just doesn't care about Latin America or Canada. And I feel like that has just, I don't know, even maybe become more apparent in, in these years where it's just like, meh. Right. Um, And I find that really disappointing. One of the things is that one of the interesting things also about the Pan American Games is that it's always been a showcase for women. That's what I was going to say. It's it's always so in 1951, Ava Perone is really interested in fostering women's participation. No one knows why there are so many women's sports required of the Pan American Games. I've looked through all the minutes, all the meeting minutes. It's not clear to me why. But for whatever historical circumstance, there's a bunch of events like women's diving. Uh, that people in Latin America were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Literally, the Guatemalan Olympic Committee was putting out calls in newspapers that were like, "Is there? are there any women divers? And of course there are, but these are like, you know, patriarchal dudes. Like they're like, hello. So it's, it's been very important for Latin Americans. It's been very important for women. And I feel like the more important that's been for Latin Americans and women, the less that the U S has cared about it. I don't know. Amira, do you want to, you want to chime in here? Yeah. I was just going to say that the women piece uh, was huge, especially for women. I study black American girls in track and field. Pan Am games have always been vitally important. And they Mm -hmm. are next to the Olympics, the biggest uh, export of the biggest competition, the biggest opportunity. And so from the 50s on, a lot of the women that I study, like that is a space in which they can get discovered. So for instance, the Pan Am Games put athletes on the radar of Coach Ed Temple, who was then able to offer scholarships to women like Carlotta Gooden from Panama, women from other parts of the Caribbean who are then who came to Tennessee State on athletic scholarships to run track at the elite programs. It mm-hmm. showcased people to get jobs in physical education as kind of lower level coaches or scholarship recipients in other spaces. So it was, it had multiple importance. And I would like to draw a line from that to now, because actually at the U20 Pan American Games, one of my former students just this weekend set a new record in her, with her four by four team and also brought home a silver medal in the 400. So shout out to Alexis Holmes. She is amazing. And it just reminded me of the opportunity that a lot of Black girls have used um, the Pan Am Games for to showcase their talent and represent their country, even if the country, you know, is barely looking. Now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, where we take everything that has sucked in sports 
for this week and throw it on the proverbial burn pile. Shireen, what have you got? I actually know that I was very excited. All our listeners know I was very excited about AFCON and, you know, Algeria won and they beat Senegal uh, one nothing. I love Sadio Mane of, of Senegal. I think he's a beautiful player. He plays for Liverpool and I just saw a lot of the joy. Like I kept seeing positive things being written, you know, which is great. I did actually get a message by a good friend of mine who had seen a lot of very, very horrible videos just before the final. And they were absolutely steeped in anti-blackness. And a lot of that rhetoric came out before the final when it was Algeria, which is a North African country was and is historically full of Afro Arabs. So this is what also confuses me. And plus, there are you know Afro Arab players on Algeria. Just the fact that this type of conversation is considered very normal. And yes, the Arabic and the French translations, like you know, I'm not very very familiar with that particular dialect, but it's pretty clear when you're using the N word and what that looks like in Arabic or in French. And I'm not going to repeat it, but. I think that the videos being posted by people that use fandom as a way to carry the racism is absolutely unacceptable. And this isn't just a situation where, you know, these are Muslim majority countries and racism isn't permissible in Islam. That's not what I'm talking about. Racism isn't permissible in, in most organized religions. But what I'm talking about is the fact that this type of conversation doesn't happen. And I haven't seen major outlets talk about it. And then I actually had contacted a friend of mine, Meher Mazahi, who is an Algerian football writer. And he provided a lot of insight to this because I was trying to dig around to find out what was going on. And he said, it's a, it's not specific to the final. This had been happening through the entire tournament. And he says, there are people that just singularly go out and they put stuff on Snapchat and their Insta stories and it goes viral and stuff like this. And I think it should go viral because having conversations about it and talking about it is really, really important. I think that there is a little bit of a, not necessarily a disinterest, but just sort of a lack of understanding and nuance for English speaking outlets to actually cover this. And I don't always think that's a bad thing because I really don't, I'm not super comfortable and don't have a lot of faith in white football journalists talking about anti-blackness within this context because they don't know how and it gets marred. And like, I just, that that's the way I feel about it. Yeah. And, I did want to say that there was also without, I can't have this burn without mentioning Mamadou Barry, who was a Ghanaian PhD student who was run over. And it was reported initially that he was run over by Algerian supporters, even though he's actually not from Senegal. He's from Guinea. He was from Guinea. And he had a young child and a wife and was a PhD student in, in Rouen in France. And, you know, just sort of how this trickles into racism within France and anti-blackness within you know, the diasporic communities also was very, very complicated. So then it was actually reported that it was a white supremacist that might have hit him, but it was used as a look at the anti-blackness in this community. So the whole thing is really, really complicated. And my only solution to this is for people to actually not be assholes and not be racist. That would be great. And let everybody enjoy. Like, I love that Algeria won. I would have been thrilled if Senegal won. But this type of conversation and this type of, of action in football, there's no place for it. And I absolutely hate it. And I think it's really important for Muslims around the world and people from that region in North Africa to actually start talking about it more. So Burn. I want to go on that. Amira. Yeah. <laughs> Shouts to Shireen for sending me more things to burn. Um, I want to burn today uh, this ridiculous piece that somebody wrote in defense of the podium girls at the Tour de France. So essentially there it was a movement, there was a protest, there was a petition to do away with the podium girls who, you know, we all know them in multiple sports who have the flowers and, and the medals and the whatever to the victors on the podium, whether it's NASCAR or um, cycling, whatever. And the petition um, basically said, listen, women are not objects. They're not prizes that you get for winning something. They should be on the podium as sports people and not as kind of dressing to your victory. And so this person took umbrage to that and basically penned this entire piece that said radical feminism is ruining sports uh, <laughs> because 
you know, how dare you t- replace the podium girls? Well, I agree with the point that this is work. And so if people are getting paid for that, you know, and that's their choice. Like it's not a direct attack on them. But he is so upset because his precious sport might not have podium girls. He talks about how being a podium girl is not just maintaining their looks, but it includes having a lot of endurance and linguistic ability. And then beyond that, he said, I want to just read you this one quote. So yes, podium girls have to look good, but the climax of celebrations for winning one of the most grueling physical tests of endurance on earth, it would be laughable for a tremendous physical specimen who's devoted hours to whipping their body into shape to be presented with the reward by someone who couldn't be bothered to put on a bit of makeup. Oh, This might seem like a throwaway matter, (laughs) but this is... (laughs) So yes, if you didn't know, radical feminism is ruining sport, but also like, how dare you? Like, you can't function in sport without the window dressing of scantily glad women. Like, to me, just points out that how much modern sport has, and in its historical roots, been tied to the spectacle, and that its spectacle is provided by this aesthetic, this curation of beautiful women, white with women, little, <laughs> yeah, with little clothing who are literally acting the part of the trophy wife or the or, or the the other prize and to me it's just a larger indictment to what we've come to be so accustomed to in sports that a little change like this feels like it's threatening the entire system the entire game itself when in general it's not like the the tour de france will go on no matter who gives the person their their winnings <laughs> So I just want to burn down your, whatever that was, I just want to burn it. Burn. 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 And my burn this week comes from Sports uh, Club in Recife, Brazil, Recife, in Pernambuco, who fired one of its very poorly paid players for complaining about the conditions of training for soccer, women's soccer there. Pernambuco may seem like a a far-flung place for people in the U.S., but is actually a really important state in Brazil and has a long tradition of soccer. And the picture, which was posted by the interviewee for this week, Julia Belas, is literally of women trying to play soccer in knee-high grass. Like the literally trying to pass the ball in fields of knee-high grass. And when they complained about it, they were fired. And of course, they never made a living wage anyway. But to add, you know, whatever to whatever, here they were, you know, running through and trying to pass a soccer ball in those conditions. And then there was all of this backlash that came and one of the players and and it's hard to even find out information about this unless you're really like looking. So I don't even know how much it's in the public's attention, but Julia Belas and other Brazilian reporters have been on this. And it's just like unbelievable to have the material evidence in front of you of how little they care about the women that play for them. So I just want to burn that. Burn. 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 After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some incredible accomplishments of women in sport this week. In our Badass Woman of the Week segment, the honorable mention goes to Portland Thorns, which drew 22,329 people to Providence Park Stadium, the highest ever in history, to watch them play earlier this week. And they welcomed back World Cup champions Lindsay Horan, Tobin Heath, Adriana Franch, and Emily Sonnet. Gladys Tejeda of Peru won gold at the Pan Am Games in the marathon competition. Duti Chand was named one of India's most influential people by India Today magazine. Erica Wheeler of the Indiana Fever was the WNBA All-Star MVP. And Brittany Griner was the first WNBA player to have multiple dunks during the All-Star game. Can I get a drum roll, please? The Badass Woman of the Week is Allison Felix, 
who raced her first race since a harrowing premature birth and months of her daughter in NICU. She made the finals and placed sixth at U.S. Track Championships. Congratulations. You are truly a badass. So what's good in our weeks? Shireen. Oh, I'm very excited about Vandy. Those of y'all that don't know, Burn It All Down will be on the road at Vanderbilt University. We will be attending the Men Conference, which is going to be amazing and co-sponsored by the YMCA there. Is it the YWC or the YMCA? This is the YW. Oh, the YWCA. I just love seeing my crew in person and it's going to be really fun. And I have musings about a cowboy hat. Um, I'm just figuring out how to do my hijab with it, but I'm sure there's a tutorial online somewhere. In terms of what's good, <laughs> I went to the dump yesterday. I'm moving and that's like so stressful. And then, but I love the dump and the recycling center. I get a lot of joy from going there. In my brain, going to the dump is like the perfect date. You get something done. It's not the most laborious thing. It is, but it's just, it's really fun. I like, I can tell by the silence of Brenda and Amir. They're like, what is she talking about? I just really enjoy it. I don't <laughs> no, know why I always have these very interesting people there. Like they're just getting stuff done. And there's also this freeing thing of you're getting rid of stuff. And they also have a goodwill depository that you can go and donate a donation center, which I find really, really helpful as well. So anyways, I'm enjoying that. Also, the Emirates Cup is on right now, the football cup, and it's a tournament that is comprised of Arsenal, Arsenal women, Bayern Munich women um, in Lyon. And it's just it's it's just a really fun, quick thing. It's a tournament that, you know, just to keep interest alive in the summer. And I, I do like it. It's, it's, it's like a very, very tiny Champs League kind of competition. And I like that because it's cross-league. Um, you've got, you know, the French, the Germans, and the British – it sounds like some historical weird thing, but it's it's not. It's just it's it's a really it's a really <laughs> fun thing, and I love getting a chance to see the players that we've fawned over during the Women's World Cup to be featured again, and I'm excited for that. Yay, Amira! Two things. One on Friday, I went to a very special event here uh, downtown State College at this place called Three Dots, which is this community space. We had um, a celebration of Black music with Soul Space, which is a collection of Black women who sing soul and blues and R&B. And um, a few of my friends sing with them. And it was just a wonderful time to have that space in the middle of Central PA where we saw great performances from Soul Space to Bubble Come Soul, which is a collection of three sisters who are tiny little things who sing. It's so cute. And my student, Gabe Green, who is a poet and a musician, lit up the stage. There was dancing, there was a DJ, there was great food and great drinks, and it was just wonderful. So that was much needed. And then also I got to see Brenda last week. So that was my what's good from last week, even though I wasn't on. I saw her and her adorable kids. I just love them so much. So that was fantabulous. I mean, also Samari has been gone for a week at sleepaway camp, but since this is the one week, they like force them to write letters home. And even though it reads a little bit like a hostage letter because they don't want to write home at all, I haven't heard from her in a week. So knowing that I will have to get an emailed letter today um, makes me very happy. And I will see my baby girl this time next week. She'll be home. Oh, so cute. So last week was me. My what's good was meeting Amira's kids. I mean, which I've met before, but, you know, every time is special. And for this week, what's good, and I just want to shout out all the parents who feel, and I know you're both part of this, who feel that summer is both expensive and hard if you're trying to work through it. What is that? (laughs) In the summer? What? Yeah, it's just really, I love spending time with my kids. My youngest one and I have had like a great bond this summer, but Jesus Christ, (laughs) like... (laughs) It is so expensive and my kids are ready to kill each other and we still have five oh, weeks left of summer. And I love every minute of it and simultaneously hate every minute of it. <laughs> so I just want to say what's good this week is that all three of my kids have something to do okay. every day. Like there's a structure. There's This is the one week where they all have extended camps. And I hope they enjoy them and appreciate the fact that I'm going broke to provide that. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'll miss them terribly. <laughs> that's my words, good. That's it for this week and burn it all down. Remember to burn on, but not out. Though we're done for now, remember that you can always burn day and night with our fabulous array of merch, including mugs, pillows, tees, hoodies, bags, and beach towels. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We really appreciate your reviews and feedback. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, and link to our Patreon. Once more, we'd like to extend our undying gratitude to all of our Patreons who have supported us in that ongoing campaign and allows us to keep doing this show every week.